Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With Rebecca Ford. Hi. And with David Canfield. Hi. So today we're going to uh, follow up on that Tony's preview you heard last week since the Tony Awards happened. We're going to talk about the best TV and film of the year so far because it's June. We're going to talk about new releases and get into our Pride flashback today to 1997's in and out It really is a lot to get into, even though uh, in theory we should be slowing down because it's summer. Um, so Richard... Honestly, start with the Tonys for me because uh, I didn't watch the Tonys live or the Barry finale live. I don't know how I'm allowed to exist on a podcast without having done either of those things. Um, so I we need a lot of catch up on the Tonys. How'd they go? You know, they went pretty well. Um, I think the, the the ratings were up apparently about 40 percent from last year's historic low. So that's, <laughs> I guess, mildly encouraging. Um, once, you know, like they did last year, they broke up the show they had a um, something they called the T- Tony's first act that was just on Paramount Plus, which is, you know, CBS's streamer. Um, and that was hosted by Darren Christ and Julian Huff. And then at 8 p.m., uh, they went live on CBS proper uh, for the Ariana DeBose hosted main event. Um, and so the, some of the smaller quote unquote awards went out um, from seven to eight and then eight on um, was the big stuff. And um there was a moment there during the the, the main broadcast where uh, they had been at the top of the show, uh, really, you know, kind of highlighting the diversity of their nominees. Uh, m- but much like last year, you watched as those nominees didn't win category after category. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh, dear, I think this might be going badly. Um, but then, you know, things picked up. And I think that, you know, A Strange Loop uh, winning Best Musical uh, along with Best Book of a Musical. Um, that was, you know, that capped the evening off with That's the kind huge. of right energy. And, um, um, and you know, I think that uh, obviously that was one of the big shows. Company, The Revival was. So uh, Patti Lapone won a Tony. So there was, um, you know, kind of classical, you know, Broadway stardom on stage. But there was also the, the new and the vibrant and the exciting. Um, so that's always a good balance at the Tony Awards. I feel like even if you didn't watch the Tonys, you may have seen uh, clips of Ariana DeBose uh, as the host and the calls for her to host the Oscars, which seems yeah. like uh, we've been here before. Uh, Hugh Jackman did it. Neil Patrick Harris did it. Um, should Ariana DeBose host the Oscars? I mean, I, I mean, sure. I mean, she's already hosted an Oscar pre-show, you know, the year before yeah. she won an Oscar. Um, she was great at it. She was a she was a very competent host of, of the Tonys. Um you know, a very, you know, theater kid energy, but that that works for, for the Tonys for sure. Um, she got to sing, I think, three times throughout the show, reminding us of, you know, partly why she has an Oscar. Um, and uh, just, you know, she 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 held uh, things together with with the right mix of humor and sort of elegance. And, you know, uh, the Tonys demand a certain old style classiness you know um mm-hmm. people have tried to make it young and hip and fresh and that just does not work because it's the tony awards mm-hmm. um so i think she found the right balance and um that is a, a deceptively hard task it's it, you know people would maybe say oh the oscars they're the bigger telecast it's harder to host but the tonys have to 
contain a lot of moving parts. Usually the host they want to have do kind of performances basically. And, um, and she was definitely up for that. So, so that was good. And, you know, Darren, Chris and Julianne Huff were, were, were pretty good too. Uh, I'll say, um, so everyone was kind of on their best that night. Um, minus Hugh Jackman who did perform. And then immediately after it was announced, I mean, the next day that he <laughs> tested positive for COVID and it was like, well, <laughs> maybe oh that explains something about that music band performance. Yikes. Um, David and Rebecca, did you guys catch any of the Tonys or the chatter about the Tonys? Um, I watched the opening number that Ariana did, and I thought it was amazing. I think she's so great. Uh, I wouldn't mind if she hosted the Oscars, though I do feel like I don't know if she'd get like eaten alive for that theater kid energy at the mm. Oscars. But um, I think she's just so talented. And I watched a few you know, clips. I didn't watch the whole thing through, but... It seemed like a really entertaining show, and I feel like they often do a really good job with that one. I get so mad at the idea of her being eaten alive for theater kid energy at the Oscars, because I know exactly what you mean. We all watch it happen to Anne Hathaway, but it's like, what do you want? Like, right. you put someone on a stage to entertain you. What, like, do you, would you rather have Seth MacFarlane, like, making the whole thing look stupid? It's, I mean, we talk about this in Oscar season, too, but the idea of what an Oscar host should do, I feel like no one is ever going to like truly decide or know what they want that would make them happy. Yeah. I also think for her sake, I don't think she should take that job. Like no, no, that job, no. that's a lose, lose <laughs> job. Close. Like, yes, exactly. Uh, Olivia Craighead at the new Gawker. Um, she wrote a piece kind of saying that Ariana, Ariana DeBose was too good for the Oscars. She was saying, you know, Anne Hathaway gets painted with that theater kid brush, but Ariana DeBose is um, the girl at Stage Door Manor who gets every lead and then show, transfers to your high school and is just like a killer and just like takes every big role, you know. And and um, I think uh, that would suggest maybe that she has uh, the a higher competence in a way to host the Oscars. But again, I hope she doesn't because it is a pretty thankless uh, task at this point. I say save us, Ariana DeBose. Host the Oscars. You have so much goodwill. No one's going to tear her apart because she's too likable. Take the risk. <laughs> but also I want what's best for her and maybe her and Jackman do it together I watch you it you know a passing of the torch of some kind oh that would be good does the fact that he didn't win the Tony mean that he's gonna be hungry again and needs to, to keep trying could be yeah um, well, Richard, we're going to stay on you for a little bit because uh, as our critic, you have taken over the job of writing the best movies of the year list um, and as a group we all put together best television of the year list which we can talk about as well um, but Richard, you know, movies are our thing here. I think so far this year we haven't necessarily gone um, gone too hard on Oscar buzz for anything that's come out this year. But mm -hmm. uh, looking at your list, there's been a lot of good stuff anyway. There has been, yeah. Um, so yeah, we're putting this up because we are roughly halfway through the year. Um, so this is meant to be more of a kind of like, here's stuff to watch as we head you know, into the next uh, portion of the year where we will see a lot of potential awardsy stuff. Um, you know, there... I would say it's been an okay movie year thus far, um, but there have been some smaller highlights, things like Kimmy, the Steven Soderbergh, um, Zoe Kravitz movie that uh, was on HBO Max or still is. Um, uh, so you Won't Be Alone, which uh, the movie from Australia slash Macedonia that I think I raved about on this podcast. Uh, yeah, I saw yeah. it at Sundance because you convinced me to do yeah. it. And I was so glad I did. That's so good. I, I, I'm assuming we'll when, on the on the post, we'll have, you know, um, links to where these things can be streamed. But that's definitely one worth seeking out. Um, it's about a witch. It's it's interesting. Um, and then, you know, Petite Maman, which technically was awards eligible last year, but they they did a, a release so delayed that it, I think it came out in April. So it's like that does not for me really count as a 2021 movie. Um, that's yeah. uh, the movie uh, from Celine Shiama. Uh, who did uh, 
Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, this is a 70-minute sort of fantasy fable drama uh, about a little girl meeting another little girl in the woods. Um, and uh, it, it's a really beautiful kind of thing. I watched it with my parents. If people are looking for something to watch, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Good <laughs> parent movie. Summertime visits with their folks. Um, it, it is a sweet and and your mother particularly might <laughs> might appreciate it. Um, and then I had uh, I also have on the list uh, something I saw much uh, well after it, it first premiered. I think it was at Cannes last year. Um, is a movie called Hit the Road from Iran that um, was recently a critic's pick in the New York Times. Like it, it's gotten well reviewed, but I don't know if it's people are, are too aware of that movie. Um, it is, as the title would suggest, a road trip movie with a family, um, kind of akin to Little Miss Sunshine. There is, you know, the grumpy dad and the cute little kid and the worried mom, and then um, a, a, the sort of older son. Um, who seems very anxious about something. And as the movie goes, you realize that um, this is not just a normal road trip. They are headed toward the border so this older son can flee the country, essentially. Mm. Um, and so it adds this mounting kind of tension and drama um, and, and sadness to it that it's so well rendered. And um, the director, his father, uh, is a big director in Iran. And um, the movie, I think, subtly is um, you know taking aim at the government, a very repressive government, in that country, uh, while also reveling in the beauty of the natural landscape uh, there, which changes from desert to kind of green, verdant mountains. And I don't know, it's a really striking film that's that's very, um, you know, I think a lot of foreign cinema that you see at festivals tends to be in the sort of Romanian New Wave style, very spare, no music, you know, no, no fussy camera work, just you know, kind of we're going to focus on this character drama. But this one has that, but also an abundance of style and 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 there's tons of like, Iranian uh, pop songs that play throughout and I was really really taken by hit the road so I hope people will check it out yeah that's one of the ones on your list I had not heard of at all um, which is the value of mid-year lists like this I think especially because it can be hard when you get to the end of the year to sort through everything it's good to be able to highlight things at the midpoint like this yeah yeah you know it's just guideposts I mean look you know we have there is some fun summer counter programming coming to theaters Mrs. Harris goes to Paris for example I think this podcast most anticipated movie of the season of course um but you know if you're if you're not feeling the offering out at the theaters which people should be going to if they feel comfortable um this is a hopefully a good list of stuff to work your way through and at least I would say maybe half of them are readily available on streaming services um, well, one that's not on your list, and I'm not here to badger you for, but would be on mine, I think many others, Everything Everywhere All at Once, is now available for streaming after a really remarkably successful run in theaters. Um, this is up to you if you want it on your list, Richard, but it would be on mine, and I think people should check it out. Um, David or Rebecca, anything that you have loved this year that either is or isn't on Richard's list? Um, I really loved Great Freedom, which was the, I think, Austrian uh, Oscar entry, and it was shortlisted. Um, it's a post-war very, very dramatic, very sad uh, queer film, but um, really powerful. Um, I caught that, I think, <laughs> on an iTunes rental. Um, mm. And I, I did also want to shout out one movie on Richard's list, uh, Benediction, which I, um, another queer uh, <laughs> war film, uh, which is it really, um, I, I'm just kind of uh, obsessed right now with Terrence Davies' um, biopics and the way that he has rendered these really queer stories in this um beautiful cinematic language um i saw it at the castro theater in san francisco which felt very very appropriate <laughs> uh, as part of the san francisco film festival and um 
it was uh it was really moving it's a really moving movie and the final shot of that movie is so haunting and pretty powerful it's kind of davies kind of going most directly at his own it's not about his life by any means but like his own kind of sexuality and stuff which he's been sort of cagey about in the past and um it's a historical drama about a real life poet um that uh siegfried sassoon and it's really sad uh it's about the trauma of world war one um and how it affects this poet and his circle of of queer friends but it's also funny i mean there's a lot of it's I mean, catty. The, the, gospel, the gospel writer should take notes. I yeah. mean, there is some a, a grade A like bitchiness in this movie, um, uh, spewed off by a lot of cute British guys. And um, yeah, it's it's. I saw it at, at Toronto last year, and um, kind of it was on the streaming, you know, part of the the festival, uh, and was just in my Airbnb and was like, hey, I'll put it on, and I found myself so engrossed. Um, mm-hmm. So people, yeah, really should seek benediction out, especially during Pride Month. Watch the sad gay movies. Yeah. Uh, so as I mentioned, we'll also have a list of the best TV of the year so far, which is really a delightfully wide ranging list, as is appropriate for um, a lot of us putting our heads together to to pick things for it. Um, Rebecca, people have heard you talk about Pachinko, but you got to write about that for the list. Um, anything that you are proud of, either that or something else that we picked to highlight? Uh, I, I'm I'm always happy to write about Pachinko. And I, I feel like uh, that's the show I've been sort of supporting um, since it first came out and we first started covering it so it was it was nice to see it included in this as well richard you wrote about the staircase which uh has taken up a lot of mental energy of i feel yeah. like david and i have talked about it a lot too <laughs> I, I feel weird constantly recommending that people watch the show with like three horrible you know depictions mm-hmm. of someone dying on a staircase <laughs> but like it really is rewarding and i find i did finish the series uh recently um and I think they really stick the landing. It's poignant. It's chilling. It's, um, you know, I, I, we talked about the show already, but like it, it just is such a, I think, masterclass on how to do this kind of true crime um, because it is commenting on the nature of true crime. Um, there has been stuff recently where um, the, the subject of the of the show, uh, who is still alive, uh, has kind of come out against the accuracy of the show, as has another character. Um uh, another another a woman who who is depicted on the show um and look there are always going to be those questions of of how exactly accurate it is but i think the broader points that the staircase is trying to make um really come across no matter what and so yeah people should seek it out there are harrowing scenes you have been fair warned but like um i think it's really worth that yeah david i'll promote you uh, if you don't want to that you wrote a really great piece last week kind of about that very thing about the staircase deconstructing true crime when there have been so many other true crime shows out this season um and i feel like that really clarified for me what makes this show unique yeah and i think the last two um are to richard's point particularly rewarding in the way that um they subvert your expectations on what how a true crime thriller should end um i think that the increased prominence of tony collette's kathleen um like episode seven is really her episode and she's so fantastic in it um but it's not what you often see from these shows and under the banner of heaven um i i talked about the sort of fading of daisy edgar jones's character brenda who's the victim in that story and uh the show's attempts to to centralize her in the narrative and and not being so successful at it um i think the show the staircase is able to uh you know, avoid that trap by really just picking it up, picking the genre apart and um, being able to have a little bit more 
not fun with it, but um, yeah, zoom out a little bit and and have some bigger things to say about it. Um, the rest of this list includes a lot of shows you've heard us talking about at various points. I wrote about Our Flag Means Death, but I would have just as happily written about We Crashed or Severance, which are both on the list. Um, Rebecca, you wrote about Atlanta, which I think we've talked about a little less, and we had at least one listener kind of ask us if we could talk more about it. Um, and I've heard a, a really um, up and down variety of things about this season, but it seems like it, it's held up for you. Yeah, I think, you know, they had a long break between seasons, and I was really curious if uh, they could bring it back and sort of, um, keep up the quality that they've had the first two seasons. And for me, it works. You know, some episodes work better than others, but I just think the 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 writing is so strong and the characters are so uh, interesting. And I, I just find it to be such a um, singular voice. And and Donald Glover is, is so talented that I, I, I overall feel like it's still one of the best shows on TV. Something I, I recently caught up with, um, I, I don't think it made our list, but um, I wanted to highlight, um, I finished we, uh, we Own This City, the David Simon show mm-hmm. oh, yeah. uh, about Baltimore. And man, oh man, is John Bernthal amazing on that show. I mean, he, you know, he's coming off of a really great, um, maybe close to a supporting nomination performance in uh, King Richard. Um, and he plays a horror, I mean, a horrible person on the show. He's, he's a very corrupt cop in Baltimore who... Um, just does many many bad things but the performance is is incredible so i i really think that he should be on a lot of watch lists for whatever awards they qualify for because i think the show premiered too late for this year's emmys i don't know it's eligible oh it is okay all right well then keep an eye out for him i just i was just really blown away by his work in that show yeah i did an interview with him recently that's up on the site and uh, you know, he obviously is known for sort of going really deep in, in characters, but he did like three months of ride alongs with Baltimore cops. And he talked to Wayne Jenkins, uh, you know, from prison on the phone multiple times. And like, I think that performance is so incredible. And I just wish it were more in the conversation. I mean, it's so crowded. It's honestly hard to tell what's in the conversation at this point. But Mm. His his work is really really fantastic. But the Emmys always always give a ton of things to David Simon shows. So I <laughs> especially yes. the yeah. especially yeah. the yeah. actors. Yeah. The actors yeah. always yeah. fare well. Yeah. Well, Richard, let's hop back to your best movies of the year list uh, so far for a second, because also on your list is a new release this week, which is Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, um, which we certainly talked about from the Sundance Film Festival, the same place as um, You Won't Be Alone that we just mentioned, um, and I. I think in terms of Oscar-y movies from the first half of the year, this is certainly one to discuss. It's got this big, juicy leading role from Emma Thompson, who is a real creative force in making this movie happen. Um, it's a very light movie, but it, it stuck with me, and it, it seems like it stuck with you as well. Uh, Oscar-y, except I think it's an Emmy's play. I don't think they're. I don't think it, it's going to qualify. Yeah, I think you're right. Did we ever? Oh, my they're God. just putting it like, on Hulu. I thought we decided that wasn't true. Yeah, no. <laughs> Maybe it was just my wishful thinking. Yeah, it's it's a really really boggling choice by, I guess Disney at this point. <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, it's a searchlight movie, um, because Emma Thompson is amazing in it, and um, and uh, you know, it's it's very much a COVID movie in that it's two people in a room, um, for the most part, and um, that but it, but it uses that limit. Uh, really well like I, I think it fills that space um and you know it feels like a play in a good way um and uh, but there is you know there's some cinema to it as well but yeah i think it really comes down to um daryl mccormick who plays you know who's the other the other lead is is great a great find and and you know very appropriately sexy and engaging and all that but um thompson is really doing something that um 
I just don't feel like I've seen her do in a long time or ever, maybe. And uh, it's it, it, it should be richly rewarded. And I don't understand why the powers that be don't see the obvious nomination that they, that she would get if 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 that movie was campaigned right. Here's it my would question. Be hard to qualify it, right? Right. Sorry, that's, Rebecca. That, well, yeah. that's what I'm wondering. Can they change their mind and put it into theaters in the next few months? If once they hear people like us talking about this, but won't it? I think it would have had to have been in theaters first, first. right? And that they'd only so. they'd have to change their mind in like the next two days. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it is a so, shame. I think yeah. you're right. It'd be nice to see her in that conversation. I mean. And we've been talking about it since Sundance, you know, like the fact that she gives a really great performance in this movie has been known since the moment that it premiered. So why? I don't know. It, so like, Richard, you were tweeting over the weekend about the tale. Like, yeah. this is a digression, um, which is just this really amazing, like, bleak movie mm-hmm. um, that was Emmy qualifying. So it was an HBO release. Um, and it's not like it didn't exist. It's not like it didn't get seen by people, but it feels like it didn't get its due in kind of the same way as good luck you, Leo Grand is here. Like, I, I hate grappling with this feeling because I value the Emmys a lot, but it's really, it's different, right? It is. I, and I tweeted about the tale because I was thinking about the Leo Grand situation. I mean, mm. the, the movies are, could not be more different. <laughs> uh, the tale is a really harrowing uh, kind of memoir about sexual assault um, uh, or abuse. And, um, uh, but but both of those are, are examples of Sundance movies that get plucked up by big companies, um, and then those companies kind of didn't really do justice, do right by those titles. I don't think you know. I don't know if the tale was really a th- that wouldn't have made any money in theaters. But like Laura Dern is incredible in it, as is um, Jason Ritter and and uh, Elizabeth Debicki. Like it's it it's it's a very it, it's on HBO Max now. If people want to watch it. Um, it, it, it's a it's a really sterling film and and i think leo grand is not quite a, at that level but like i i just don't understand maybe there is some sort of backroom calculus that i don't understand that like there it makes the most sense to do it this way but from my admittedly um half ignorant vantage point i'm like i just don't get it <laughs> i think this like leo grand was one of the biggest movies at sundance it felt like this year and um to to sort of put it on streaming. I mean, the tinfoil hat in, you know, where in me, and I heard this echoed elsewhere, like, is like, this is just further, like Disney just kind of burying searchlight, you know, um, and mm. it's going to become a Hulu only kind of endeavor, much in the same way that FX is kind of gradually becoming. Um, and that'll be that. And they just don't want to have, um, they don't want to have like theatrical releases or campaigns for these movies. That's tragic. I don't want that to be true. I really don't either, because, I mean, if, if Searchlight goes, I guess we have Neon yeah. kind of coming up. And so there mm-hmm. are, are other players in the game, but Searchlight has been a stalwart for, for many years now. Yeah. If you look at that, I mean, Kate, as Katie knows, I have a lot of feelings about that Emmy TV movie category. Yes, <laughs> I was just going to turn to you. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it is in an interesting place because last year, uh, two of the five nominees were those kind of, Sundance premieres. Uh, you had Uncle Frank, which Alan Ball directed, starring Paul Bettany and Sylvie's Love, starring Tessa Thompson, and they both lost to Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square, which <laughs> I mean, <laughs> which I enjoyed. It, it, it is not a knock on Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square to say that it's just a wildly amorphous category where you have streamers um, acquiring. Um, you know, in those cases, I think decently reviewed movies out of festivals and then just burning them off with Emmy campaigns because they probably won't go the distance with Oscars. So that's one side of it. And then you have on the other side, the year before that was Bad Education, 
um, mm-hmm. which HBO, much like The Tale, acquired um, out of a festival, in that case Toronto, and then put up for Emmy consideration. Um, and that's a movie that um, I think could have gotten a kind of Oscar run. Maybe it wouldn't have gone too far, but um, it just doesn't get that same sort of play, uh, unfortunately, uh, that it would in an Oscar campaign. And it just becomes part of this weird side Emmy sideshow that's not even a part of the main ceremony anymore. They don't, you know, those categories are now the TV movie category is now um, is part of the creative arts ceremony the week before. So. Yeah. Yeah. And the actors are are, uh, lumped in with limited series, um, which is uh, gets a lot more attention for various reasons because of the structure of TV at an automatic disadvantage. Yeah. Like Hugh Jackman loses to Mark Ruffalo uh, for a performance that Richard, I know you and I've talked about. It could have been his Oscar. Oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yep. I I think we've just gotten to a point where, you know, the sort of quote made for TV movie, that concept is very old. Um, and we have plenty. Netflix releases new films all the time, and it, it's and it's more associated with movies. But when you go to the other streamers and other things like that, I think a standalone debut movie just somehow doesn't sit right in like the kind of broader kind of cultural mind. You know, it's like no, it's either a series or it's a this or it's that. And like I think movies that kind of show up on the platform um, from from festivals or wherever they they just there's not. Um, they haven't figured out how to like remarket those, you know, TV movies used to be kind of an event on HBO at least. Um, and now it just, they kind of just enter into the streaming world and, and fade away, which I, I think they need to, if they're going to keep acquiring things, they need to figure out how to, to better position them on the sites. I think that is one place that Netflix has better figured out um, how to do that. Um, mainly just by <laughs> investing an insane amount of money into Oscar campaigns, but there is also <laughs> a real sense that when there is a movie that they care about, there is a lot put behind it. Um, a lot of marketing, a lot of noise around it, um, in, in press and things like that. And, and I do think that that has stood out among the streamers for sure. Well, David, I was just going to ask you and I were talking about how we both watched the Adam Sandler movie hustle, um, which is out now and, um, he's really good in it. Is it Emmy eligible next year or is it Oscar eligible this year? I believe that is Oscar eligible. Um, that's insane that that's Oscar eligible and Leo Grant is it. I know it's different companies, from but what I'm going to lose my mind here. Netflix, it is, you know, being floated as a potential Oscar play. So, so I guess it played in a theater somewhere just as a like a safekeeping kind of thing before they put it on Netflix. The thing is, <laughs> for us reporters, it really is impossible to track where mm-hmm. these movies are playing because. At the end of the day, they are streaming and the vast, vast, vast majority of people, including us, are going to watch them on the streaming platform. And so it becomes a matter of qualification, really, if they do go out in theaters. And I, I know Netflix particularly is looking at um, changing its theatrical strategy. They've had filmmakers criticize it, um, criticize the way that their movies were rolled out in the past. Um so that may change coming into this Oscar season, but regardless, um, this is a streaming company and the movies are viewed that way. So, so it's always hard to know. Like, I truly can't answer that question. I don't know where it played, but I assume it played somewhere. It might have played at the Paris in New York because they own that, that theater. That is it, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're playing Spiderhead there, the new uh, film from Jessica Kaczynski uh, based on George Saunders' novel, or a short story, rather, um, that is a Condé Nest um, production. Yeah, sure is. Um, 
But, you know, I think otherwise, you, uh, David and Rebecca, you guys might need to just do a stakeout outside some theater in Tarzana every week and see, like, what Netflix movie briefly plays there. <laughs> because that, that'll give us the, the answers to, um, to what's qualifying and what isn't. I am doing a, a quick Google, and it looks like it's playing in Monrovia at a theater and Glendale there you and go. a couple other. So it is in a couple theaters, yeah, there enough to qualify. There. There we go. They would be uh, it, the fact that we are the people who should know that and we don't is um, it, it tells you something. Well, just speaking briefly at the Sundance Film Festival and movies you can watch right now. Cha Cha Real Smooth, um, which you heard me talk to the director of uh, Cooper Reif uh, earlier this week on the interview episode of the show um, is also out this week. Uh, and I think worthy of your attention. It appears it's also playing in limited theaters. So it will be an Oscar conversation at some point. Um uh, David, you and I talked about it on the interview episode, uh, and we both recommend people see it, right? Yeah, Dakota Johnson's pretty great in it, uh, and Cooper Rife is definitely on the rise. Yeah, he really feels like someone who, you know, he's 25, so he'll be waking movies for a really long time. And I don't like how much. you keep throwing his age at me. I don't appreciate it. I just need you to be aware. <laughs> we all need to know about who's coming up to eat our lunch, um, which he, I don't think he would say he is, but, you know, keep an eye on that guy. <laughs> So for our Pride flashback today, David, you brought us in and out, uh, which you have discussed on a, another podcast recently, which I am using to expect that you come with all the historical research about this 1997 movie, um, which we can all talk about how we remember it. I remember it very well and hold it very close. Um, why was in and out the film you wanted to revisit this? week? Um, I think it has a it holds an interesting place right now in uh, the gay movie canon. I, I think it's pretty divisive. Uh, and polarizing. Um, I did discuss it on a podcast fairly recently, uh, The Queer Quadrant, which is a great podcast people should listen to. Um, and I, I can never get tired of talking about this movie because it was major for me uh, as a child. And it was one, it's one that I hold very close. And it's also one that has one of my favorite all time ask. Uh, oh, sorry. One of my favorite all-time acting Oscar nominations for Joan Cusack. Yes. Um, what's, what's the backstory of you seeing this movie as a child? Well, um, let's see. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think well, I'll set up the movie first because I, I think it, it kind of ties into that. But it's, it's a movie. Um, it's a 1997 movie, as you said, Katie. Uh, and it's very much a 90s movie, which is part of what I love about it. Um, but it stars Kevin Klein as um, a high school teacher who is really beloved in his small town. And um, he, one of his former students, played by Matt Dillon, <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. wins an Academy Award and uh, outs his teacher as gay, um, essentially saying, you know, He's great and he's gay. Um, and this in, in a direct riff on Tom. And Hanks's I was about to say this. Speech. This yeah. is the rare movie that is literally inspired by an Oscar speech by Tom Hanks's speech for Philadelphia. And so that alone, I think, merits uh, make, merits discussion on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> born from Oscar history. Um, and, and the movie is really about him navigating being outed. Um, and it's a it's a painful thing, but it's also a chance for him to sort of learn to actually live as himself and be comfortable with himself and not have to hide that part of his identity. And it's a nineties studio comedy. So there's lots of really broad silliness. There is a kiss with Tom Selleck that is 
forever etched in in memory <laughs> um and i love revisiting <laughs> it over and over um and and there's also um i think the where it gets a little tricky is this question of self-acceptance versus stereotypes because there's a, a famous sequence in which he's listening to this tape that's essentially teaching him how to be a man and he ultimately cannot uh follow the tape's instructions because he just wants to break out and dance and uh young david watching this felt that found that extremely moving uh, <laughs> because mm. you know the movie does definitely um trade in stereotypes but I think it also understands a certain uh, femininity in men as something that doesn't have to be, you don't have to be ashamed of. And for me, that was major to see, to see him sort of break out in this ridiculous uh, flamboyant dance um, is, is not a moment of shame in the film. It's a moment of pride. And uh, here on Pride Month, uh, I think that's something <clears throat> we're celebrating. Richard, where were you in 1997 when Kevin Klein uh, danced to uh, "I Will Survive"? I was in the theater seeing that movie. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I think it's a, it's a great. You know, it, this is a very much feels to me like a kind of movie that studios don't make anymore. Yeah. You know, this big glossy comedy with a single writer, Paul Rudnick, who you know is now a longtime New Yorker contributor and stuff and playwright, and um, it just it just works. I, I think one thing about it that like sticks out to me now here in 2022 is. This is the most stacked cast. I mean, there are just like every, yeah. even the smallest roles are played by great people. I mean, Lauren this Ambrose. <laughs> yeah, Lauren Ambrose is yeah. incredible. This is obviously so Shalom Harlow is in the model, uh, is in the movie as his June Squibb. And of course, they've done so many films together since. Yes, um, yeah. They're kind of Iconic duo. Spencer and Tracy of, you know, or whatever. <laughs> no, not Spencer. What am I saying? What am I trying to say? Hepburn and Tracy. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, Bob Newhart's amazing. Debbie Reynolds is incredible. Wil Wilford Brimley. It's just on and on and on. Um, it's it's such a it's such a well tailored movie, um, similar to something like First Wives Club from uh, the year before, and uh, I miss that kind of rich seeming like the like I don't mean mon monetarily, but just sort of like there's so much depth of texture to this big studio comedy, and I don't think we see that much anymore. And and the gay aspect of it, I think you know, uh, rewatching it, I was a little bit nervous that it would sort of ring a, a bit wrong you know with all of our kind of hindsight but it actually doesn't i think it's yep. i think for what it's about a small town guy who is kind of he's outed to other people but he's kind of outed to himself um the the, the sort of timid exploration of what that might mean uh fits the story because he he's not you know he's not living some secret life um uh it, it it's a it's all a discovery for him and everybody else Rebecca, you want to go? Yeah, I'd never seen the film before, so this was my oh, first wow. watch. I don't. Where were know. you in 1997? What were you up to? Uh, I was 13, so <laughs> I don't know what I was doing, but not watching this movie. And I, it felt really um, like I, I really loved sort of stepping back into that sort of 90s, uh, you know, as you're both talking about uh, film and and this sort of comedy, and and I really really enjoyed it. I and then I was reading this piece. Um, on Vanity Fair from like 2017 that was with the writer Paul Rudnick and sort of saying that you know there were people who saw this trailer and sort of assumed that you know the whole thing was a mistake and and he was really straight and that would be like the source of the movie's comedy and and then you know sort of when they were in the theater discovered it you know it was a really a coming out story and I just thought that must have been such a I don't know such a unique time for this film to come out so 
Yeah. I, I, thank you, David, for picking it. So I, <laughs> I feel like I'm glad I got to add this to the my experience. I definitely think everyone um, I, should watch it. It's yes, I if agree. only for the time machine. <laughs> I would be interested in someone who was born in 2002 watching this movie mm-hmm. and what it would mean to them. Like, I think the the context of the late 90s and which is, you know, we all remember. And, I, you know, if you watch movies from that period, you can kind of get like just the way that coming out was something that was brave. And you know, I think Paul Rednick talked about there had been so many dramas about coming out being like tragic and sad. And he wanted like a joyful version of it. And there there just weren't very many of those at this time. Um, but I think that it's it can be hard to put yourself in that mindset if you weren't around for it. I would love for some of our younger listeners to maybe let us know what they think of this movie. Um, I also watch this for a different podcast. And David, you're not the only one who gets to be on another <laughs> podcast um, called Screen Drafts, where it was about all the films in 1997. And there were just so many movies from that year specifically of just people being like, oh, God there's gay people now and like we have to like be nice to them and like embrace them but like do we have to like um it, uh, as good as it gets really stuck, stood yeah. out for me and that in that theme um and i think knowing that that was kind of the tone of culture at the time like ellen came out months before this movie came out i think they must have done like an adr line of some reporter shouting at kevin klein like do you know ellen <laughs> um it was just it was just everywhere and this movie captures that in this really i, I think joyful way yeah, and, and yeah, I was thinking the same thing. This is now, I keep rewatching this movie uh, for various reasons because I also showed my husband the movie before the first podcast. So I've rewatched it like three times in the last few years, which is pretty crazy. Wow. Um, I'm, a, I'm a stan. What can I say? Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm also, and, and so the last time I watched this, I was also really interested in the fact that I do feel like I am probably of the last generation that gets a certain nostalgic quality out of just the aesthetic of the movie and of mm. the time period, because the movie is such a product of its time that I do wonder people who not only aren't as, you know, the, the coming out process is not what it was in 1997 or even 2007. Um, but also those movies have a different sort of appeal for people who didn't grow up with them, obviously. Um, and so I, I don't know how the movie ages in that respect, because um, it definitely has that sort of quality for me that, um, and I think it sounds like everybody on this podcast, that um, it wouldn't have for someone who's not of our age. They spent money on it. That's the quality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, looks, it looks expensive. Um, and I, I echo Katie's um, you know, plea to have people born in 2002 watch the movie, because I'd be curious, curious to hear their perspective. But ask your parents, kids. If you if you were born in 2002, be sure this is an R-rated film, I believe. So, yeah, um, and it's still 2005, right? So we're all we're all exactly. very young. They're, they're, <laughs> they're in daycare. Um, yeah, and I just want to also go back to the Joan Cusack's nominated turn, which is yes. so good, and and you know, running down a nighttime street in a wedding dress, screaming, "Does anyone want to marry me?" Like, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it, that could be a sort of mean joke about like marriage desperate women. It's not in the, in this movie's hands or in Cusack's hands. It it is a, an empathetic, really crucial component of the film's arc. You know, um, that that there you know there would be someone jilted by this. You know, mm. um, and and I think they handle her very fairly, and she's so excellent in it, and it's such a rare example of the Academy seeing a standout comedy performance and saying yep you get to come to the show um it only happens it feels every you know seven years or something if that 
one Kevin Klein being a really famous example of it for winning for A Fish Called Wanda. Yeah. Um, it's like he, he passed the torch down to Joan Cusack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and especially for a movie that didn't get other nominations, you know, to, to mm-hmm. really, for her to stand out to that degree, you just don't see that very often. Yeah, like even Melissa and McCarthy and Bridesmaids, like that movie had a screenplay nomination. It was a little bit more Oscar-y right. than In-N-Out was. Yeah, I rewatched the scene where, you know, he's just kind of jilted her at the altar and she's yelling at him and it ends with her shouting, fuck Barbara Streisand <laughs> in the church. Um, and there's just there's so much emotion to it. Like, you can see how much she loved him in this relationship, even though, like, he, you know, he had been lying to himself the whole time and her. Um, it's just really beautiful. What a what a treasure she is. Um, one last thing. Uh, how do we feel about the fake Oscars in this? I was reading a piece that our, our friend and uh, returning future guest Joe Reed wrote. Where he was like, why would Cameron Drake's movie get three long clips in the middle of an Oscar ceremony? And I was like, okay, Joe, fair. Uh, I respect you on the Oscars more than anyone, but I love these fake Oscars and Paul Newman for Coot uh, so much. Paul, Paul Newman for Coot is incredible. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Because I think there's a, the, the, the movie for the most part is um, set in, in the real world, you know? Um, but I think some of the Oscar stuff, it's like that 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 tips it into kind of higher satire in a way, sure. Um, which could be disruptive to the movie's tone, but I think does work because you get the specificity of Paul Newman and Coot, you know, which is exactly <laughs> a movie that he would have made had, you know, in the Sliding Doors universe. And it it feels like a tip too to um, you know the roots of the movie, and the origins of the mm-hmm. movie, and really paying tribute uh, and spoofing Oscar history and Oscar moments as much as you can. I mean, I, I ate those moments up. I, I think that they in a way help make the movie because they do take it to another plane like you're saying richard um because it is you know a, a largely pretty realistic movie i mean within the constraints of a 90s studio comedy um those are the moments that i think take into a more imaginative realm let's say it also provides a lovely you know lost utopia where a bunch of high school students were eagerly watching the oscars I mean, <laughs> yes it's, the oscars matter so much in this movie it is you know families gathering to watch yeah what a time i really love that glenn close walks out to present to the um music from sunset boulevard the musical like that's just (laughs) such a specific rooted in time thing that the oscars absolutely would do in real life um someone was paying attention it is funny to think that um the oscars for this movie year 1997 would actually be watched with that kind of intensity because of titanic you know, uh, so, so the prophecy did sort of become true, at least for that year. <laughs> Steven Seagal will get nominated someday for Snowball in Hell. Right. It's, it's coming. That does it for this week's show. Next week, our Pride Month series will continue with Pariah, the 2011 film from D. Reese. So catch up on that with us and join us. You can find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com, where Richard's list of the best movies of the year and our collective list of the best TV of the year are available, along with so much else. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. And David. David Canfield 97. You can also sign up to text with us at joinsubtext.com slash little gold men or text 213-513-7160. Our editor and producer this week was Dave Gonzalez. And this week's award for the best description of our Pride Month flashbacks goes to David Canfield. Watch the sad game movies.